Let's face it, living takes guts and living a full life takes a lot of guts. Igniting Courage podcast is the place you can come to get a blast of courage from real people who are clawing their way through life just like you are. We're gonna talk about big courage and also little daily courage. You'll hear people's opinions on how to build courage and how to summon it when you would rather join the circus and never be heard from again. So welcome. I'm glad you had the guts to show up for this conversation. Hi, and thank you for joining me for Igniting Courage podcast, episode 88, part one. This is my interview with Dave McIntyre, the winner of the History Channel's show Alone, season two. Awesome interview. It just kept going and kept going. And so I have turned this into part one and part two, where we talk about the courage to put yourself out there in the wilderness alone, completely in charge of your own survival and all of your knowledge comes into play and all of your courage comes into play in order to keep yourself alive. A fascinating study on courage here in part one. So I hope you enjoy. All right, Dave McIntyre, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting me to, to talk to your people. Yeah, no, I was so excited because as we think about courage and just survivalistness in general um, is a really incredibly courageous thing to sort of put yourself out there in the wilderness for survival, but to also partner it with a television show and, and all of that and 66 days all by yourself that becoming the winner of Alone Season 2 is, is a pretty neat thing. So I know you've got some incredible insights to share with us today. Hopefully. I mean, like I, like I say, I'm a guy that does stuff in the woods. <laughs> That's how I, you know, in the beginning of the show, this, these people are trained survival experts and all, it's like, okay, yeah, right. I'm a guy that does stuff in the woods. <laughs> so I was just avid into wilderness survival ever since I was about 15 years old and doing that here. And then I, I moved to Brazil where I was a missionary, an urban missionary in uh, the city of Belo Horizonte with 5.5 million people. And I, uh, I thought I was giving up the wilderness to do that, and I discovered that there's more wilderness just an hour outside of the city than any place I've ever imagined, and actually uh, ran a uh, ministry taking uh, inner city kids out into the jungle and using wilderness survival training as a springboard for leadership development, spiritual development, that sort of thing. Um, so I, did, I, I do have extensive wilderness experience, even as a professional. Um, in 2008, when the dollar crashed, uh, the value of the dollar crashed in Brazil, I opened up that course for paying customers with a friend of mine as the, uh, the Bushmaster Wilderness Survival School. So I do, I have taught wilderness survival professionally, um, oh, did that for a number of years. So yeah, it's, it's not like, you know, the skill set and the passion for it developed into uh, both a ministry for non-paying if, if the kids didn't pay to, to do that and then also for paying customers. So I've had people from, you know, all the branches of Brazilian military take the course on their own. They weren't, you know, I wasn't contracted by the Brazilian government or anything, but people from other countries flying to Brazil to take our course. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was a great uh, experience. Great. And I'm sure that played into your definition of courage. I mean, as, as we all develop through our, through our lives, how would you define courage? For me, I, I define courage as, as doing something you regard worthy of the personal sacrifice and risk involved, that, that you're going to commit to a course of action knowing full well that it could personally uh, end you or, or seriously, uh, there's a serious risk involved and you, you do it anyway, you manage that fear 
in fact, wilderness survival is that it's you know you're mitigating risk because what you're training yourself to to recognize and mitigate risks because you are in an environment that will end you. Um, nature is very dangerous to people personify nature that if I love nature, nature's going to love me back, <laughs> and it doesn't. It will not. It does. It will. It will kill you and feed you to the crows, and the sun's going to come up tomorrow again. You know, it, it's you're going into intentionally going into an environment that has risk. Um, as a wilderness survival uh, instructor, teacher, practitioner, and passionate about it, um, a wilderness area is wilderness because it's already kicked mankind out. You know, mm -hmm. we've tried to uh, it, it, it colonize every, mankind as a species has tried to colonize every environment on the planet, and some of them are still wilderness, which means that they failed. So any place that's still wilderness, you're going into an area that could, uh, it's got something very antisocial about it. it. It's not a good place, an easy place to, to be, or there'd be cities there. So courage to me is, is understanding the risk that you're facing and doing it anyway, because the goal was worthy of the, the sacrifice. And um, that's how I regard courage. Wow. Uh, foolhardiness is going into an area just oblivious to the risks and, and, you know, jumping off the cliff, not knowing the depth of the water. That's just foolhardiness. You know, it's, it's when you understand the risk, and you commit to the course of action. That's the thing that, um, for me, defines courage. Yeah. Well, and I always, people say, oh, do it fearless. And I'm like, if you're fearless, you're not paying attention, right? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. That's, that's foolish. Yeah. That's so foolish. I, in, in, my own, in my own personal story, I had spent two years in Brazil previous to committing to going back there full time. And for me, that was probably the most courageous thing I've ever done personally is, is to know full well what it means to live in Brazil and that culture and, and you know, the risks involved and to commit to a course of action of staying there, moving there with my family long-term. To me, that was you know, summoning up courage to, uh, to do that. Yeah. Well, yeah. And working in an urban missionary situation that, you know, you're, you're putting yourself in, in some peril probably. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, there was a lot of, a lot of uh, very dangerous things going on in Brazil during my time there. Yeah. How did you get started in all of the, this wilderness survival stuff? How did you get started doing stuff in the woods? <laughs> um, that's, that's a good one. Um, I lived in an area where we had, in Pennsylvania, it was a subdivision, and we had, you know, I could have gone either way. I could have gone into, like, sports and things like that, but behind my house was a huge area of uh, fallow farmland, forested area, uh, train you know, a big swamp, a train line that went through the huge right away on either, either side of it. So I had a lot of wilderness area right behind my house, and I just loved it. I was, I kind of grew up out there. And then uh, as I gained independence as a teenager, things were not very good at the McIntyre household. Uh, my, my father was an alcoholic and a uh, very high-functioning alcoholic, uh, ended his career as the director of materials engineering at, at Boeing Helicopters. Um, very intelligent man, but um, very difficult to be around. And we just spent a lot of time in the woods. We'd go up to the mountain house, my brother and I would say, hey, just drop us off on the mountain and come pick us up on Sunday. You know, so we'd spend the whole weekend just to, you know, to be out there because it was just more peaceful and safer than being at home. So um, I, my brother got really into the hunting end of things, and uh, I got really into the survival end of things. How do you operate in the forest, you know, in that environment and mitigate all the risks and, and just really have a, a they say, you know, I don't rough it, I smooth it, you know, mm -hmm. to go out there and, and operate in those kind of areas. And then I became like a terrain junkie. It's like, okay, I can do this in Eastern woodlands. What about other areas of the world, you know, and, and you just kind of develop this. How do you do that in a desert? How do you do that in, the, in a jungle? And uh, 
being in Brazil, that was 15 years of jungle experience for me. It, every time I go out in the bush in the jungle, I see something I've never seen before. Even after 15 years, it was just an amazing ecosystem. Central Brazil is incredibly uh, has incredible biodiversity. It fascinates me that human beings can, with you know, primitive technology, which is not actually primitive, but, but like Stone Age technology and techniques, literally colonized every uh, every ecosystem on the planet except for Antarctica. And that that just fascinates me that we as a species have the capability to go into any part of our planet and be and just be become dominant there. And how do you do that? And an ancient man developed all those techniques because we are incredibly intelligent. And to be able to study that and, and just delve into that, the how they did things in all those different areas, um, that this is just fascinates me. Yeah. Well, and I love the way you say, you know, you don't, you don't rough it, you smooth it because you kind of do need to find that. How do I work with this? And I remember in your season of Alone, Nicole was a really good example of that where she really just kind of ingrained herself in and you did as well to try to figure out how do I work with this rather than fight it and try to control it. Yeah, the, the way I put it is every, every forest speaks its own language. And you know, having learned Portuguese as an adult, you know, that you go into that environment, you can't function until you actually learn the language. And to, to go into a wilderness area, you have a basic skill set where you know how to make fire and water, shelter and all those different things. But you go into a, a completely alien environment. For me, I've never set foot on the West Coast of uh, you know, British Columbia in my life. So I'm going into an area where I have absolutely no local knowledge. I just have the skill set. You have to learn how that landscape speaks those different things that you need and and learn how to read it and to me that's just a fascinating process to, to go through i didn't even know the names of the things i was eating out there no. to tell you the truth it, it, seriously like i'm i made i, I talked about you know dungeness crabs i'm eating dungeness crabs actually i was eating northern kelp crabs and, oh. uh, i didn't even know it but i'm thinking you know when you think survival food you're thinking slugs and bugs you know? right it's just horrible things and i'm, I'm feasting on crabs in these gigantic, delicious crabs. And on one of the med checks, one of the Canadian cameramen was there. I said, I just caught my first crab a couple of days before. And I asked him, hey, what kind of crabs do you have here? He says, oh, we have Dungeness crabs. I'm like, okay, they must be Dungeness crabs. So the entire show, I'm calling them Dungeness crabs. And it, it, when it was aired, that all kinds of people from Canada were just ripping me up one side and down the other, you know. Those are northern kelp crabs. We don't even eat those. Uh, we don't know. even eat those. So to them, it was slugs and bugs. Right, right. No, they're delicious. They're, they're awesome. But I figured it, for me, it was a huge emotional boost that here I'm surviving on food, which costs like $26 a pound, you know what I mean? And I'm just pulling it out of the ocean. I still can't bring myself to pay for crabs. You just pick them up, you know, you just catch them on a hook. Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. So, I mean, that must have been a whole new, you know, as you talk about new environments, adding the show to a survival situation. Um, that must have been an interesting step in the wilderness survival piece of adding cur courage to, hey, now you have to film everything that you're doing. Talk a little bit about that. The, yeah, the, the courage for, for being on the show, for me, um, it like I, I hear people say all the time, oh, I'd be, I'd be terrified to go out there by myself and you know, be in the world. To me, that was not the aspect that, that gave me fear. Um, the, the idea of being out there by myself and filming it, um, that, honestly, that, that did not cause me, cause me fear. What, what did cause me 
I would say the fear that I had to repress out there constantly was I really did believe I was going to go out with a major injury. And mm. if you're at low tide on Vancouver Island, you're walking in seaweed basically the entire time. It's a very slimy rock situation. And, and I fell so many times out there. And I, and I knew, I just knew that one of these days I'm going to fall. I'm going to go down hard. And I'm going to go out here on a backboard. And that was the thought which would kind of get me like I'm laying in my sleeping bag thinking, okay, today was good. I had that fall. I managed it. I was all right. But you know, tomorrow might be the day, you know, that I actually get to see one of my bones for the first time. You know, I, you know, you never want to see your bones, you know what right. I mean? <laughs> <We> <laughs> the, you know, you the they're in there, all is good. Yeah. You know, when you see them, yeah, that's not cool. And that kind of a thought would plague me at night. And, and I'd have to actually consciously repress that thought. Um, that was like predators and things like that. You know, I, I wasn't afraid of that sort of thing. Honestly, it, I mean, I would get up and t- the, only, the only thing that bothered me with, with the wildlife was the idea of uh, cougars or mountain lions. That they, mm-hmm. They'll actually they'll actually observe you and, yeah, and they'll, 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 they'll come to a point where they can they can kind of watch you and just see what you're all about. Bears investigate. They realize you're human. They leave. Um, cats will make a decision about you. Um, I remember that in Brazil all the time. I'd be sleeping in my hammock and the, the, the big thought was, you know, a, a jaguar would actually come up and, you know, slice my bottom of my hammock open to see what I was you know <laughs> wow yeah. well yeah I mean jungle jungle predators are are perhaps a slightly more uh ominous <laughs> could I say that oh, the jungle the jungle is far more dangerous than than where I wasn't alone yeah so I you're mean, like ah, no big deal <laughs> uh, we had we had plants in Brazil that you just brush up against them and you're on fire you know and, and it lasts for hours and swarms of ants uh yeah, it, it's ants, bees, wasps. It's all the little things in the jungle that'll kill you. Yeah, and you know, you get you get attacked by wasps in in thick jungle, you can't even run, and it's it's that's scary. They'll never do the show in the jungle. <laughs> it's just too dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So, did courage play in for you at all with sort of turning all that footage over? Um, you know, you were filming yourself six to eight hours a day, right? Yeah, you're you're filming, you know. All, all day, every day, and you can't, you can't do something like that and affect some kind of a persona. You know, you go out there and I'm the big, brave you know, adventure guy and, and just maintain that for 66 days, you know, so I don't even attempt to do, do that. You're, you're going to, you're putting yourself out there for sure, and you have no control over the editing process, so you do turn it over to them, and, and you've got, to, if, if they edited every time I was missing my kids and getting choked up, I'd look like a weepy little girl out there if they edited every time I did something that was spot on, I'd be like a slick low drag operator. You know, if you have no control over how they portray you, mm. um, you are trusting them in that. I think they did a good job with it. I think my personality didn't come across distorted by the editing. Um, yeah, but it, you're, you are putting yourself out there in the same way with my fiction. There's a lot of my, a lot of me in my characters when I write fiction and people that know me, I, uh, they know know my story. They know where I'm draw- what I'm drawing on for those things. You know, and hopefully the people that are reading my fiction that don't know me is just coming off as authentic in in the character that it is. But you put you you have to take that risk to to put yourself out there to be known, um, warts and all. And yeah, uh, be authentic to yourself. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're comfortable in your own skin, 
I mean, everybody wants to be seen as or known as or known for, and we put our best side out there all the time, and we and we cover up and camouflage all of our defects. And, uh, you know, it, I, I say all the time, if you want to know what people think about you, they don't. They're, you know what I mean? They're not spending their lives thinking about you. They're spending their lives thinking about themselves, you know, and, and that's, that's – so I, I really don't care anymore if people – see my defects um, because I'm a work in progress. And, you know, a, as a pastor, that was one of the things I, I definitely did is I never wanted to model perfection to my people. I wanted to model growth. Mm-hmm. And it, how can they see growth if they don't see your flaws? And they see your flaws anyway if they investigate. So, you know, it's not like you can really hide those things. People know it. People know you're just covering up. And, you know, I'd rather just let it all out there. Absolutely. And how much did your faith play into your courage to stay? I mean, one of the things listeners may not know about alone is you don't know you're, you're out there with 10 people, but they're all spread out over the Island and you don't know how anybody else is doing. You're just completely alone waiting until somebody comes and says, Oh, Hey, you won or (laughs) no. So how, how or you've lost so much weight. We have to pull you. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, you're completely, it's a solitary experience. You are absolutely alone. And there is no back rubs and barbecue on the beach when the crew does a medical check or anything like that. It's, you are completely on your own out there. Um, for me, you know, this wasn't, in, in terms of how did my faith play into it, I would say it wasn't my first rodeo in that regard in that I spent 15 years as a missionary in Brazil where all kinds of things, I mean, I could write a book, you know, all kinds of things happened where my faith proved uh, fundamental to getting through it. And, you know, as a believer, it's not like I, I just look at that as a psychological uh, crutch or something like that. It's more like I, my faith isn't a crutch. It's full-blown life support. You know, um, I've been taken to places where it was severely challenged. And for me, it's, it's you know, they say faith is blind. That's only looking forward. If you look back across your life, you can see uh, areas where I believe God was in control of the circumstances and things like that. And and worked out very bad situations for, for good. And I went into alone with that track record. So it wasn't like this is the first time I might ever have to depend on God. You know, he's been there for me in the past, faithfully providing for me. And that's kind of how I felt on, when I was out there was that I, be- I believe that he had called me into this for the purpose. And to me, that gave, gave me the courage to know that whatever the result is that as long as his purpose is being fulfilled and, and, and playing itself out in my life, that, that this is the thing I should be doing. Um, my first month out there, I lost about 35 pounds and I went from 195 down to 160. And I had a very, uh, you know, when you're in, when you're in starvation, your body uses that time to detox it. All the, all the stuff that's built up in your body that shouldn't be there. Your body gets rid of while you are, in, in, in that total fast, um, your mind will does that when you're in isolation, that when you are by yourself for that long. And, and it's not only just being alone, but being alone without any media, no books, no radio, no TV, no internet, nothing coming in, just wilderness. And you're, you're out there with your own thoughts. And all the stuff that you've repressed or have not dealt with emotionally does come to the surface. And I, about a month in, I had a very cathartic experience going through uh, – Having been through a divorce and having been through the loss of my career in, in, as a missionary in Brazil and all that, um, lost my, you know, everything I'd built up in my life at that point had been stripped away. And I had to deal with it emotionally. And I went through a process of forgiving 
a lot of the people that had, uh, you know, confessing, first confessing the things that I had done wrong. Because it was the first time I could actually see myself and how I contributed to the falling apart of my own life um, without condemnation, without someone accusing me, you know, like going to the divorce and all. And being able to deal with that um, and pray through all that and ask for forgiveness and receive that forgiveness was very instrumental. And then all of a sudden, there was a lot of other pe- other people that had done horrible, horrible things to us while we were in Brazil. It's a, it's a very incredible story, but I had to actually forgive those people as well, but I had to feel the pain. And that was a place in, I wouldn't, I never wanted to go because mm-hmm. to, to forgive people that have done horrible things to you, you have to, um, you kind of have to feel all that rage and that pain all over again. And I had avoided that. And that month long fast, basically broke me down to the point where I had to deal with it. And it was, it was that that took me to, to, to get, finally give me the, the courage to emotionally face it, all that and process it. And then it was, I felt light as a feather after that. And mm-hmm. it was then I started getting food. It was then I started, you know, finding uh, crabs and catching fish consistently. And by the end of my experience there, I was actually regaining some of the weight that I had lost. Um, Wow. Yeah, that was that was that's kind of incredible. I'm not going to give any spoilers, but there's one other one other contestant has won the show well, actually gaining weight since. And uh, yeah, I was the first person to actually do that. Yeah. Wow. Well, and that's incredible that it kind of after that catharsis, it turned around. Was that that month in when you were having that emotional sort of experience? Was that um did you ever say, okay, this is too hard. I'm out. This is, I don't want to deal with this. Cause a lot of people don't want to deal with that stuff, you know, and, and all that rage and all those feelings and forgiving people who did were just plain wrong. Um, was that a time that you wanted to walk out? Um, it was a very, it was a very frustrating day to get fed in the wilderness. There's two ways that you do it. You either actively hunt and fish or you passively hunt and fish. Okay, passive hunting and fishing is setting up traps and nets and hooks and all that kind of stuff is working for you while you're doing something else. And standard doctrine is to get as much of that passive fishing infrastructure set up and then actively fish as you have the time. And I had done that. I had said I actually made a whole second gill net. You know, I actually crafted a gill net out of rope fiber out there. And my passive fishing stuff was just getting torn down every time I check a line or whatever, you know, the kelp would have ripped it out or, you know, it was just brutal coastline to try and passively fish. And I went out and I checked my net that, that one morning and both my nets were items strung up together and they had come down and the surf had rolled them into a knot. Oh, I was so frustrated. I was really, really just angry and, you know, fit to be tied. And I wanted to throw that net through a hole in the forest and just walk away and I'm like, I am doing everything right here. And I am doing everything I've taught other people to do. And wave after wave of destruction is just tearing it down. And, like, and all of a sudden it was like, Bing, this is your life, dude. <laughs> you know, this is your life. And that's what started me on that, that path. I never hovered over the button, you know, that they call it the tap out button on the, yeah. the GPS tracker. That red button is actually the rescue protocol button, which... You know that gets helicopters in the air if you if you press that red button. You don't just press that to tap out. You actually call them on a satellite phone and say, "Hey, this is the deal. I'm I'm going to be out here." And when I when I first got there, I took that satellite phone. I had a dry bag they gave us for the cameras, and I buried that satellite phone in the bottom of the dry bag. I didn't even want to look at it. Uh-huh. And through that first month of starvation, you you kind of crunch the numbers and you think, "Okay, can I can can I continue to do this?" 
And it did turn around for me at that, that second month after that, that day with the net. Because I had to untangle the net because there was a crab. And the first crab I caught was actually tangled up in that net, in that ball of net. And I, I had to untangle it to get to the crab. And it was then, and that, then that afternoon, here I am eating this delicious crab. And I'm thinking, okay, if I can catch these crabs, we're good to go. And three days later, I caught six of them on the line. And that was like my emotional turnaround moment. And I, and I realized, okay, I could, you're crunching the numbers. I'm getting enough to eat now. I'm, I'm able to do this. And uh, there comes a point where you go into an environment like that and you're making discoveries every day. Okay, you're in an alien environment making discoveries every day. And then you're applying your best ideas, the best of your knowledge and skill set, you're applying to the best of your discoveries. And there comes a point, maybe a month in, maybe a month and a half in, where you're not making any new discoveries. You know the place, and you're not coming up with any new ideas. You're pretty much maxing out on, on your personal skill set. And you, you, my mo- mantra out there is make tomorrow an easier day. You know, I started out with all these goals. You know, I, I get up in the morning, I put set up the camera in my morning check, and I tell them exactly what I'm going to do during the day. And every evening I have to say, you know, I didn't get any of those things done. <laughs> and I didn't meet any of my goals. And I felt like a failure. So I said, you know what? The only gun to my head is in my own hand here. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm just going to say, okay, what I'm going to do today is make tomorrow an easier day. So whatever that, whatever will the wilderness threw at me, that was, I deflect to making tomorrow an easier day. So that might be you know, reestablishing my rain catch so it's circulating better or you know, cutting a load of firewood or finding a new place to fish or getting a meal, you know, stocking something up, trying a you know, big bag of bulk help or something. You know, it's something to make tomorrow easier on me. And you get to the point where the best of your ideas are, are being applied to the best of your discoveries and you're not making tomorrow an easier day. You can make tomorrow maybe a successful day like today or maybe not, but it's not going to get any easier and it stops being fun. And to, to, to stay there, like, I would say it was no longer fun by day 45. It was like, it was not fun anymore. This is just pain. Hmm. And to stay there, the, the, the courage to stay, I, you know, I've been cold, wet, and miserable on other jobs that didn't have the potential for payoff like alone did, you know, and, and, and gone through that for my family, you know, and I felt I was doing this for my family, for my kids. And to just give up because, you know, I want a hot shower and a warm bed, you know, and a big meal, you know, I, I can give that up for them, you know, and, and I have in the past. So this is, I'm just going to continue to do this every day. And I also felt that I was, that God was providing for me, you know, and, and it would be just a, you know, I, I know you've called me to this situation. I know that I'm here for a purpose and, you know, I'm going to ditch because my purpose, you know, it, it just costs too much. I, um, no, I just uh, figured I'd stay here until I get that big injury and, and be taken out. Hmm. You know, when when I finally won, when I, I did that day where I turned around and my, my daughter was standing there in my camp, that was the first thought that crossed my mind is that I'm I'm leaving healthy. I'm, you know, relatively so. I'm stick man at that point, but <laughs> I'm leaving. I'm leaving without ever seeing my bones. You know, I, I'm, I'm not, I don't have a head injury. I, I mean, it'd be crazy, but I don't have a head injury. You know, so yeah, that was, that was a huge relief. Um, I never have hovered over that button. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's good. Cause I mean, I feel like as soon as you start to do that and you make that an option, it, uh, it just plagues you, I bet. Yeah. I, I, I know how I quit because I've quit things before, you know, and you, you, you move the goalpost, you go out there for a, pur- for a purpose and 
you say, okay, well, now I'm redefining my purpose for being here. You start telling yourself a narrative that allows you to quit with your head held high. Right. Yep. You know, and, and, and how am I going to explain why I left the island to other people? And you, you start you start exploring those options and creating that narrative, and, and you're selling that idea to yourself. And it's, it's a it's a process. It's a moment of, of you know, it's not just a single moment. It's a process you're going through. And I learned to recognize that me going down that path. I know I've been down that path before, and and I I knew that I would once I start constructing that narrative. Um it's going to be over. So I, oftentimes to, to keep myself accountable, I would, I would state my, my reasons for being there on camera. Mm. And every once in a while, the camera is just in your Canon XA25 on a tripod, you know, with the wireless mic you're, you're wearing, you're talking to this thing. And every once in a while, I would have the realization that there's like millions of people looking at me right now through that lens. Mm-hmm. And that, that's not something you, you can, you can't do I don't know other other TV people. Maybe they just get used to that idea. And I had to reduce that camera down to one person. And I, I would I would think, okay, that camera is one very interested person in me. You know, like like a student, like one of my students in the survival uh, course. That they're they're there to learn from me. They they they're paying me money to to teach them and to talk to them. And and I'm just going to interact with this person professionally. And that's kind of how I treated the camera. But every once in a while, I would get that that realization that. I'm actually talking to millions of people here. Mm-hmm. And so far it's like 3 million people have seen season two. And yeah, that's scary. I, I remember when I was back when I was preaching, I was invited to at this church to preach and I, I, you know, got up and did my message. And then as I walked off the, 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 the stage there, the pulpit, the pulpit, there was a, I see the guys that were putting it out over radio live. And it, it was like a little heart attack moment that, Oh my goodness, I just spoke to the entire Northeastern Pennsylvania, you know, radio audience. Yeah, it's it's uh, it, it, the technology magnifies that stage fright incredibly, and that's something that you have to just put down or, or deal with. I don't know how people, how other people do it. I just completely ignore. Like right now, I'm I'm going out on a podcast. There's lots of people going to be listening to this, but I'm just talking to you. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's if I maintain that focus, I'm okay. Yeah. Well, and I think that's one of the challenges <laughs> teens have these days, and you have three young young adult children. With social media, that, you know, constant attention, and it all goes back to that authenticity, because if you start to play into that whole everybody's watching thing, it's really hard to really be genuinely yourself. Yeah, I, social media, it's, I think it's warping people's perspective of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, you only see, you know, it, it's, it goes back to that thing of, of putting out the the, the bright side of, of who we are and hiding all the flaws and all that. No one posts their flaws on social media. Right. You know, very few people are, are honest, giving an honest appraisal of, of who they are. And I think a lot of kids are getting distorted into that, that they, they expect life to be a certain way because they're not seeing they're They're so involved with it that all they're seeing is that, and they're counting how many likes and how many shares and all this sort of thing. You know, it comes into their whole self-worth and, you got to have an identity based on something a lot more than that. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the reasons we love alone so much is because it does boil you down to who you are. You know, when things don't work out, when you fall in the water, when you drop your hook, when you're net and you get all pissed and you drop it and throw it down. I mean, like life's not easy. And I think social media makes it look like, Oh, everything's easy, you know? And uh, it's not. Yeah. I mean, 
I get that when when people uh, when, it, the show is on on air is is being aired and people start commenting online and they're just ripping you up one side down the other. Just people are merciless in the online commentary about the show. And I remember saying to, to one guy, "All right, you you criticized the way I did that on the show. Okay, here's the deal: between episodes, I want you to fast until next. Yeah, before right. You watch the next episode. Just <laughs> right. eat nothing. Continue your complete work schedule. Just eat nothing for a week." And come back and tell me what you know, how you feel. You know that you don't see the pain in other people's lives normally. And on the loan, that's pretty much what the show is about. Yeah. It's it's they set you up so you are going to face starvation and isolation at the mm-hmm. same time. And that's the battle. Is you are doing this facing starvation. You know, most people know hunger. Very few know actual starvation. And you are starving to death on the show. You will die of it if it continues unless you get a big game animal. So, yeah, it's it's you at your very worst and you can't, you can't hide that from all those people. Yeah. And, and then you add the solitary aspect to it as well. You know, you don't have people to talk to and people to hug you and get all of that. You know, I always wondered that was the, that was the thing that was the great unknown going on, going on the show. Cause I've, I've been in the wilderness, you know, I've done long-term trips. I've, I've done live off the land, knife only, you know, machete only kind of trips. And, I know how brutal it is. So for me going in, that was the, you know, I knew I was going to face that level of physical pain and, and hardship, but emotionally the will, a solo wilderness trip was like the way I would recharge my batteries in Brazil. If I was, you know, around a lot of very hurting people all the time and I go off to the wilderness and, you know, for four days and come back and I, I feel energized. I feel re- recharged. And I wondered at what point is that going to become the thing, which is actually tearing me apart? Mm-hmm. You know, this thing is always, you know, solitude, solitude in the wilderness has always been the thing which, which set me right again. And, and it did that on alone too. I was really eager to be out there and not be part of this production, you know, TV show anymore, you know, to just, you're around all these people, all constantly interviews and all this stuff. And then they drop it off. It's a relief. Oh, wow. Okay. Now I'm, I'm in that phase where I'm uh, recharging my batteries and, uh, yeah, it, it, for me, it was about a month in, I'd say about that time I had that, that real catharsis. That was the point um, after that, I would say the solitude was really bothering me. And that your, your emotional state is very connected to the amount of calories you're getting. You know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs says that the lowest unmet need motivates. So that if you don't have air, you're not going to think about how thirsty you are. You know, and that's just... Uh, your emotional needs are pretty high on the scale when you're starving to death. So I would go, I'd be starving and, and finally I get a meal. Okay. After maybe four days, you know, I haven't eaten in four days and all of a sudden I get this big meal and all the emotional needs would come right to the surface as soon as, as that happened. And I'd feel guilty about it. It's like, wow, I haven't really thought about my kids in four days. And oh, it's because, okay, you were starving to death, dude. Yeah. Give yourself a break. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, your body, your body and mind have you totally focused on not dying and now you're not dying and you miss your kids. And that cycle kind of repeated itself again and again until I got used to it and I stopped feeling guilty about not thinking about anything other than, you know, getting my next meal. I gave myself the break. You know, yeah. I realized what was happening in that process and come to, came to expect it. Mm-hmm. So many parallels to, to real life. 
And that concludes part one of episode 88. Do not miss the rest of this amazing interview with this incredibly intelligent and interesting man, Dave McIntyre, winner of Alone Season 2. Join me next week for episode 88, part two of this interview. I'll see you then.